0: Happy Bitcoin Friday, freaks. It's your host, Odell, here for another Citadel Dispatch. The interactive live show focused on actionable freedom tech and Bitcoin discussion. Uh, it's good to be back on the airwaves. I know there's been a bit of a break since May 13th. I guess it's actually not that big of a break. 13 days. Um, we had Miami in between then. We had Bitcoin 23, 2023 between then. Over 10,000 people in Miami congregating to talk Bitcoin. Um, It was a pleasure meeting all the freaks out there and and shaking so many hands to all the people that came out and listened to our live rabbit hole recap or listened to my panel on the the main stage with Adam and Jack. Uh, It was a pleasure meeting you all and thanks for coming out. Um, This conversation will be an extension of the conversation that me, Adam Back and Jack Maulers had on the main stage at Bitcoin 2023 to end that conference. Um, It was absolutely an honor and a privilege to have them on stage with me to talk Bitcoin, but our time was very short. Um, So we decided we'd extend it on Dispatch with with all you guys and Dispatch is very unique in that we have this interactive live chat where you guys can participate and, and put your questions So we thought it would just be a great avenue to continue this discussion. But before I introduce them further and get started here, I just want to thank all the freaks who continue to support the show. Dispatch is audience funded. We do not have ads. We do not have sponsors. It is made possible due to Bitcoin donations from our global audience. So huge shout out to everyone who donates Bitcoin. You can go to CillDispatch.com to see all the links there. Um, I have a geyser.fund page at siddledispatch.com slash donate, um, where you can donate with on-chain Bitcoin or Lightning. Um, you can also donate through Podcasting 2.0 apps, where you simply search Silo Dispatch like you would any other podcast app, choose how many sats per minute you think the show is worth, and those sats stream directly to my node. There's also a feature called Boostergrams, where you can attach a message to an amount of sats. I read out the top four booster grams from the previous episode at the start of every dispatch. And I will do that right now. We have at Eric 99 with 50,000 sats saying, stay humble stack sats. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you. Great advice. We have at Thidekis with 45,500 sats saying, love the pod. Thanks for all the great content. We have at a uh, Hanaga with 10,000 sats saying, great conversation. And then we have at 8 MythRander with 7,777 sats saying this episode explains why the ancient node CPU crashed while running a Bitcoin core with one gigabyte mempool alongside mempool.space this past week. Yeah, our last conversation was with the mempool.space team. Definitely go check that out, CD101 if you haven't already. Um, and then last but not least, I know it's a bear market, I know it's a, re- a recession. If you can't support the show with Bitcoin, Um, you can support the show by joining our active live chat and being a host to the show alongside me. It really does go a long way. You can support it by sharing the show with friends and family, searching for it on your favorite platform. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitch. We're on Twitter. We're on Bitcoin TV. We're on every single podcast app. Just search still dispatch and you can find it, share with your friends and family. It does go a long way. Um, yeah. I mean, with all that said, uh, I have Jack Maulers from Strike here. How's it going jack?
1: What up? it's going good man. How are you?
0: very good, very good. It's an honor to have you on the show again.
1: That a boy and I'm glad to be here
0: and we have Adam back uh from blockstream an absolute legend how's it going adam
2: pretty good. It's pretty good
0: awesome. so as I said earlier in the intro my long winded intro um We had a great conversation on stage at Bitcoin 2023. If you haven't listened to that conversation, do not leave this stream right now and go listen to it. But consider listening to it after. Um, You can just search Bitcoin Magazine on YouTube and you can find our conversation there. Um, But that was a very, you know, it was a a very short conversation. We had about 25 minutes. It was actually kind of funny because... Jack was going on about how time is the most scarce thing we have in our lives, and uh, the screens were flashing, wrap up, you're out of time, um, while, while he was talking about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know exactly where we should start. Um, I, guess, I guess a good place to start would be... Uh, a good place to, to start, I think would be, um, Adam, we'll start with you. I mean, you were talking about how if you don't have Bitcoin, you're essentially short Bitcoin. Um, I yeah. think it resonated with a lot of the audience on stage. I think it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective. Do you want to go into that a little bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, like some people were thinking, oh, it's just just a kind of cone or something, you know, like something to say. But But actually, it was a kind of realization from trading that, you know, if you're you know, after, uh, after you get in Bitcoin for a while, at some point you start thinking in Bitcoin, right? So you don't think about dollars. You're like, I have this many Bitcoin, this many sets, and your objective is to get more. So you like, reduce spending, try to get extra income streams, keep stacking, holding. And if you ever sell some for some reason, they get super nervous, right? And so, you know, if you're trading and you're like out, you're, you know, you've got some dollars, now you're short sats, or you're really short Bitcoin, like literally, right? You know, if Bitcoin price goes up, you will have less Bitcoin tomorrow. If there's another, you know, thousand dollar green candle or something, so you are, you know, once you re-denominate in Bitcoin, you're literally short Bitcoin. And so that it took, you know, that realization came like, you know, after some years, right? And I was like, wow, that's that's why I feel nervous about, you know. Getting back into the market as soon as I can, if there's some dollars kicking around for some reason.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, for anyone listening to the stream, most of us are probably, you know, pretty deep into Bitcoin. I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I guess there's there might be a few new coiners listening to this episode, um, but the crazy realization to me was that the whole rest of the world is short Bitcoin. And I, yeah. I kind of realized this while I was running in all caps on Twitter uh, two years ago. Um, and I would, you know, wake up in the morning and tweet something like all caps, like every blue check is short Bitcoin or something to that effect. Um, and that's that's really like it hits you in the scarcity hole in your head. Right. where it's it's there are nine billion people or eight billion people in the world. And, you know, seven point nine billion of them are extremely short Bitcoin and they don't even they don't even realize it.
2: Yeah. I mean, another interesting thing is, you know, um, it's, you know, cause it's confusing to us that other people don't get it. Right. But that the fact they don't get it is, is what creates the opportunity. Like, you know, people say we're still early, we're still really early. And, and it's the opportunity because if everybody did get it, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to buy very much Bitcoin. For, your, for dollars anymore, right? The price, the price would already be there. Uh, somebody's uh, chatting in the scroll there that Eric Weiss, who is who is the guy that orange-pilled Michael Saylor, and actually actually met him at the uh, around the conference, you know, during during the Miami week. And he to- he told me this story in person. That's fascinating, right? Which is, you know, he bought Bitcoin. It was super volatile. He decided to sell. Then later started buying back. And he's since like tweeted this story or you know did a video with this with this history and he said that you know he never got back to that original holding because it just it just gets much harder over time and 2014 is a long time ago right so yeah many such cases
0: yep there's a reason i say stay humble stack stats every morning and it's not Mm -hmm. because i'm humble it's (laughs) because it's because i've learned that uh we all could use a reminder myself included um jack dude i mean do you think i think a lot of times we get shit for or we get shit i don't know i don't uh i don't really say we are so early anymore even though i think we are still early i think every good meme is based in reality um Mm -hmm. do you think we're still early i mean
1: i yeah i got some some thought i think you know adam's obviously right um when you own anything you're inherently short everything else that you don't own It's actually a super simple concept, but it's not inherent and natural to us because um, the understanding of money um, as a technology and why it exists in the first place has been so convoluted and fucked up. Um, I think Bitcoin has brought us back to first principles as what what money solves for as a technology for our species. You know, because, you, you know, like, Money is required as a technology within society for it to scale. You know, going back to first principles of the history of money, it was, I'm being over generalistic here, but it was created because it solved the coincidence of wants problem is if I spend all my energy and my time growing apples, Matt, and you spend all of your energy and your time growing bananas, we'll have to coincidentally want to exchange apples and bananas. But what if I want a cheeseburger and I don't want your fucking bananas, then society breaks down and we don't have functional exchange and we don't have a functional way to value each other's energy and output that we're contributing to the world and to society and so money was created to capture our value and energy that we're creating and then a free market was deemed to value that energy so then you have things like you put your time and energy and you exchange the bananas i grow for gold or for shark teeth or for soybeans and we have many variations of money but money fundamentally and that's why we can have a society of 8 billion people and humanity scales with money. And when money breaks, then society breaks. And it's, so it's a, money is like one of the most valuable technologies we've ever been able to build. We wouldn't be 8 billion deep in humanity and been able to flourish and function if we didn't invent money and continue to harden our understanding of it and continue to improve it. And so functionally, it's really important to know that. And once you know that, you know, money is, is designed to be able to capture your energy output in society across space and time so that I can exchange it physically and I can store it through time forever. When what you under- yeah so it's just like how do you want to how do you want to store your energy that you create in the world? And Adam's right. If you store it in, you know, chairs or if you store it in dollars or if you store it in a bag of chips, um, you know, it's probably not the right and correct instrument to store and capture your energy. So I don't know. I, I've, I find it through my journey in Bitcoin, I found it super simple to think about these things um, and, and which money I elect to actually store my energy. Um, and cert- certain monies do a really bad job at capturing and storing my energy and performing the functions that money was uh, created to solve.
2: Yeah, I think there's something sort of counterintuitive. I mean, of course, as Jack said, most people day to day don't think about what money is. They just grow up and there's dollars or euros or something. it's just a... An abstract concept like a meter or something and they just assume it's a thing and when they realize or if they realize how it works they're kind of aghast <laughs> at the uh, kind of naked money printing aspect of it right but it's it's uh, super interesting to think in a context about you know how and why gold was a good money you know that it that it's a hard money effectively it's a proof of work because it's scarce and you have to dig it up and that costs effort and energy. And you might naively think, well, that's, you know, you can't eat it. Most of it sits in vaults or in, you know, safe places. So you not even look at it, even though it's shiny. So what's the point of that, right? Let's just, you know, replace it with a paper ledger or something. But, and, and the effort that's put into digging it up could be used to, you know, build something, a house or what have you. But ultimately it proves I think history has proven that, you know, having hard money is so fundamental that it's that it's worth it because having soft money or political money just ends up costing indirectly more. And so it's it's interesting to see, you know, how Bitcoin connects to that because you know some people who don't like Bitcoin argue that the work that goes into mining Bitcoin is not productive and. Uh, it's, I thought it's curious that, well, and I, th- I think, you know, it took me a while to, to, to find a way to articulate it, but I think that it's probable that any, like, hard money has to have an unavoidable production cost, and if you think about it, it's just like, if if you could produce it cheaply, it wouldn't be scarce, and it's a super simple concept, right, and you know, people will argue about proof of stake and all this stuff, but ultimately it doesn't make any sense. You know, if it, if it doesn't have an unavoidable production cost that other people can verify, you know, you, you can sort of verify gold because you can assay it and you know the rough, everybody knows the scarcity of it, so they know that if you have it, you spent effort uh, digging it up or what have you. And it's interesting to see people who joined Bitcoin at different periods, you know, adding expressing things in new ways or, or re-expressing them in similar ways. And it's interesting to see Bill Miller, who, a uh, famous investor, very recently, like last week, said, I guess on TV, that gold is just an inferior version of Bitcoin, which is saying that they're, they're very related concepts, right? It's, it's Bitcoin is a digitally redesigned or remastered gold. And now we have it. It's better than gold. And so presumably over time it will you know, supplement or maybe gradually displace it because it's just a uh, better technology.
0: Was that his son on stage with, was it with sailor?
2: I'm not sure.
1: I think they were both. Yeah. His son was on stage with sailor, but he was there too. Uh,
0: pa- Papa Bill was too.
1: Yeah. My, I saw him backstage at least. I think they're both called Bill. They're both Bill Miller, right? Is that true? I don't know. I know, I know the legendary Bill Miller. I know Papa. I'm, is the son also Bill
0: Miller? I don't know. There was a young guy on stage that I think was called Bill Miller, and it was not the Bill it's Miller. His son. <laughs> his yeah, no, but <laughs> so I think his,
1: son.
2: I Sorry. think that quote is the is the older Bill Miller. Yeah,
1: Papa. Uh, pa- Papa Bill. <laughs> I love it. My dad's name is Bill. Papa Bill. Uh, the uh, yeah, I think um, like how do I say? So let's go back to like close your eyes for the audience and picture like cavemen and in the invention of money as a technology. And I work all day in the heat in my cave when society is like a hundred people and I work on building, uh, let's say houses for everybody else. And I work all day for it. And in exchange, I need to get something to capture that value and buy food with it and pay my family and pay for travel. What do I, what do I get in exchange for it? Do I want to store that in wheat? No. Cause the wheat will rot and then all that work that I put in all day and night is now worth nothing because the wheat is now evaporated and it's rotten and it has mold. Okay. Then what else should I put it in? Should I put it in water? No, because there's lots of water and people can go find more water and someone will drink my water. That's probably not the most safe. So how do I, all money is, is functionally, it it allows society to capture the value that we put in and and exchange. And that's it. And so when people say, I don't like Bitcoin, it's kind of like, okay, what do you like storing your energy in instead? Like, so you work all day and night and the collective output of your life has to be stored in something. If you want to store it in dollars, I would question that because they're just going to print more dependent on fuck knows all. And it's not fair to me that I bust my ass and I work super hard only for someone else to devalue my energy output and what I do with my life. That's bullshit. So what is better than Bitcoin and designed better and operative at at better protecting my ability to capture my energy and my life? I I, I just don't understand. And so like Adam's Adam's right, gold was an awesome money because no one else could just randomly print more of it no one else would go behind my back and drink it. No one else could like, it's It's very, right? It's like a perfect way to, in the caveman days, but obviously has its deficiencies and, and we engineered Bitcoin to be better. But I think the concept of money is just so widely misunderstood. It's actually really fucking simple. It's like, I wake up and I spend my life and I want my life to be valued, and I have to exchange the output of my life into something. And I'm not going to put it in a bag of chips because those are going to rot and get old. I don't. And so it's like kind of obvious. It's like what I don't want to put it in Apple stock. Then I'm trusting Apple to perform. What if they launch a shitty phone? Does that make my life worthless? No, I don't think that's how it should work. So I think, yeah, like money is designed and it has an intentful purpose. It's super simple of what it it needs to solve for humanity. And and I don't know how you could not like Bitcoin. It it was engineered to literally be the best at what money was created to do. Yeah. Straightforward.
2: I, I mean, like certainly it's the case that the uh Major fiat currencies, you know, some of them are better than others. Like the Swiss franc is actually pretty good compared to others. But not coincidentally, it was the last major currency to come fully off the gold standard, like really recently, like mid 90s or something, which most people don't know. But in any case, you know, they have all lost like high 90 percentage points within 100 years. But in practice, what people do is they. You know, if they try to hold on to, you know, if they try to save and accumulate, which which I was doing when I was, you know, at university and right after university, you uh, and you approach it a bit scientifically. You find out about, you know, the real rate of interest versus inflation, right? So you know, you get uh, long term, you know, savings accounts, difficult deposit, long run share returns, things like that, and. Like, okay, but well what is how does that compare with the consumer price index or the retail price index? And then you read about that and you find out, you know, the politicians are massaging it and it, it's fake. Like you, you can just tell that if you look at the basket of things that you spend your money on weekly and work out your personal, you know, retail price index, it's much higher than they're saying because they're trying to like pretend the economy's better. Right. And then you realize if you're not really careful and you don't re- really, you know well-organized investment decisions, your attempts to save are actually gonna lose your spending power. And that's kind of depressing, right? So then you're like, well, maybe I need to buy, you know, some real estate. And at least the, you know, you get the rent, but the the property itself might go with inflation, right? So that's a sort of extra hedge. But you know, it, it basically turns everybody into investors, and because you have no choice yeah i mean otherwise you just lose your money it just slip through your fingers i mean sailors so melting ice cube is true but you know most people are actually literally storing it in cash you know in a safe but it's still true even if you do your best to save it because you know all the all the metrics are fake right you know the consumer price index which they like to use i was in the uk when i was doing this trading in the like early 90s on e-trade. Trying, and like savings accounts and trying to trying to hold on to the money I was saving, which I was determined to do, right My thought was, you know save, invest, compound, reduce expenses, when you're older, that'll stand you in good stead, but it's actually really hard to even get ahead in real spending terms because um yeah, you know it's quite there are periods of, and you and you never know it when you're in it, but there are periods of time when the prevailing interest rates are lower than you know. Well, right now experience price index oh, for now for sure right i mean for sure like the real you know price indexes are double digits for sure it's like
0: 12 percent right? or something like that is probably yeah. like real inflation 13 12 yeah and like what interest rates are like six percent
2: right so so everybody's going backwards right if you put it in stocks i mean i don't know that's that's a crapshoot right because everybody's just looking at fed pivots and interest rates and the stock market is basically correlated with the money printer so it's it's not even about how the companies are doing it's just money washing around trying to avoid getting deflated away so it's buying bidding up price of stocks
0: and it's it's i mean i'm not i think you agree with me adam it's more than just the fact that like maybe like if you if you know what you're doing and you get a little bit lucky like maybe you can outperform inflation in the stock market or buying investment real estate or buying gold or whatever you want to try and outperform uh, inflation with and and not lose your purchasing power actually save money for future generations but like it is absolutely tragic that people are required to do that like to me like the the promise of bitcoin is that i can just focus on my life obviously we're all obsessed with bitcoin and our life is intimately connected to bitcoin but the average person can just focus on their life and they can just save in good money right like they don't have to actually have a finance degree or pay some financial planner to, to handle this stuff for them. They can just stay humble and stack sats every morning and just focus on what's important.
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. Money, like all this stuff Adam's talking about, like stock market and, and like all this shit, it's all fucking, it's a load of horse shit. It's all like, like, Yes, Adam's right. They manipulate it. Of course they do. Again, like think the right. first principles. Like it's just so obvious is like money is a reflection of your contribution to society. It should be. I wake up, I spend all day mowing lawns, building homes, growing bananas, whatever I do, I need to exchange that for some monetary instrument so that I can collectively interface with society and with the rest of my species. And so if the money I use is every. I, I wake up, I work all day mowing lawns, and then I go to a certain individual that then issues me money in return. Well, what if that guy likes my neighbor more than me, and he, he gives my neighbor more money? What if that guy misconstrues the numbers? What if that guy tries to trick me into how much the money is worth that he's handing me? Of course he's going to manipulate it. Of course he's going to try and trick me into making – what a powerful, luxurious position that guy is in. He gets to hand the neighborhood money, and gets to decide who gets what and how much everything is worth. Um, Of course, it's not going to be fair. Also, by the way, how fucked up is that? That's bullshit. Is that the value of my life and how I spend my time is up to some dude? That's not how it should work. It should be up to whether I'm mowing lawns well and whether society appreciates the fact that I'm mowing lawns. It should be up to this fucking guy and this guy I'm alluding to the Federal Reserve. That's bullshit. This guy's going to cheat. This guy's going to scam. This guy's going to... And by the way, it's human nature. People are going to have natural tendencies of politically leaning biases or particular interests. And so, of course, if humans are going to manage the money for the neighborhood, then certain people are going to get advantages. It's not going to be fair. They're going to manipulate it. They're going to lie and it's bullshit. And so the best money is one that cannot be co-opted, is one that's naturally fair and distributed in a way that we don't have to trust someone to devalue my life. My, money money is a reflection of my collective con- My money is, is a is a reflection of my collective contribution to society. How my time is spent improving society and society is then allowed to value that. And I store that contribution and the energy that I put into this world in money. And I'm not fucking giving it to the Federal Reserve because they just devalue my life. And that's bullshit. I love my life and I have a great life and it's bullshit. So it's all scam. It's all fucking scam. And I think it's just super, super first principles. You can't not like Bitcoin. I don't understand that. It's just the best way to to achieve what money was intended and designed for. They're lying.
2: <laughs> yeah, somebody was talking about circular economy, Bitcoin circular economy in the scroll back. So I guess the question is kind of Bitcoin as a saving technology versus Bitcoin as a payment and, you know, circular economy kind of question. Do you have so, an answer? I mean, I think both, you know, but yeah.
0: I think that's where a lot of people miss it, right? It's like, um, but maybe maybe uh, social media isn't great in terms of incentives. But uh, at least in my Bitcoin journey, there tends to be, for the most part, two extremes, right? Camps. It's like Bitcoin is censorship resistant uh, P2P e cash, and then uh, that Bitcoin is a store of value. But really, you need both for good money. Like you need to be able to save it without permission, you need to be able to spend it without permission. Um, and Bitcoin is both, but that just doesn't get doesn't hit the same way on Twitter.
2: Yeah, I think Nick Sabo said something at some point. Not so active on Twitter these days, but something like, you know, for a savings technology, you need to be able to spend it when when you need to, right? You need to like buy a house or, or do some some big transaction, and so that that is a form of payment if you like, right? The, the liquidity, the ability to sell it. And um, of course, if you've got nothing but Bitcoin, you've got to transact Bitcoin anyway, right? Just to yep. get by. Um, and, you know, it's probable that people in different countries uh, have a different weighting of, of uses. So, you know, in emerging markets, many people are underbanked or they don't trust their banks for good reason or they don't have, you know, any KYC, any KYC to even get a bank account. And so they they can't, it's very hard for them to, track, to transact internationally, to get access to international markets, you know, as a small business um, or as an individual. And so Bitcoin really, because it's an open internet protocol, it really tears a lot of that stuff down, right? In the same way that access to the internet opened people up to like educational information, and learning program, and being able to participate in the online economy, then Bitcoin gives them a way to... Get paid for that directly you know without the frictions that come from uneven access to international finance and cutting out middlemen so yeah that's that's like circular economy thing and because it opens up new co- commercial activity it it should you know create value right you know fr- free trade benefits all parties basically so that is a a good thing
1: yeah i I mean liquidity is what's needed for money to be good again if i spend all my day mowing lawns and i get money in exchange for it and i can't use that money to exchange it for anything else then the money's pointless it's useless and it does a bad job of collectively representing my contribution to society so i think people kind of get caught in a loop there is since i've been in bitcoin if i've ever needed to sell it there's always been a buyer For the last decade of my life and as long as there's a buyer and there's enough liquidity for me to exchange that then yeah i can find my way to buying stuff but yeah i just think people overcomplicate money man is like i spend my life working super hard and then i go to buy a house and i can't and i have to live perpetually in debt car notes mortgages it's basically society's way of saying we don't value your contribution enough to actually own anything college debt mortgage debt car loan debt and the way you'd have to think about that is, wow, society doesn't value me at all and my life and my output. Why is that possible? Like almost everyone in the world can't actually own shit. You're like, why? Is it because I'm mowing lawns bad? Or is it because my business is bad? Or is it because my collective output to society is bad? And it's like, no, actually the money you're getting in exchange for your contribution to society is just being inflated to death. So your life is worthless because of the federal reserve is printing more of the things that they gave you for your work. And that just, like, the Federal Reserve is devaluing all of our lives. (laughs) And it's bullshit. That's just not fair, man. Like, that's just, and I don't think it's more complicated than that. So people should not store their collective, like, representation of their life in dollars because the Fed will devalue your life. They'll make you worthless. Seriously. You can work all your life and get really good at something, and you'll never own a fucking house. You'll never own your car. You'll never own your college degree. So you have to represent your life's output in something else. And what do you want to put it in? You want to put it in Apple stock? What if they release a bad phone? You want to put it in an index fund? Who's managing that? That sounds far too complicated. I don't give a shit. I just want to put it in something that no one can co-opt and control, and that I know the monetary policy, I know it's fair. That's it. And it, as long as it has liquidity and I can exchange it for shit that I like w- desire, that's it. And though Bitcoin, we like, wh- whoever Satoshi is, who, she, or they, like, fucking, like, the best thing ever. They took a look at money, how humanities understood it, and then tried to engineer the best version of it. And it fucking worked. And it's really just, like not more complicated than that. Oh, fires me up, man. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, you could work your whole life and your life is going to be deemed worthless because... The people that are handing you the money in return for your life's output are manipulating it. It's bullshit, it's not fair, and it's ruining society. Broken money, society can't, scale, can't operate at this scale of billions of people and on the internet with money that's broken. It's why everyone's sick and mentally ill and the world's falling apart. That's the reason. So yeah, right. people
2: talking about uh, volatility, like short-term volatility for emerging market users, a potential problem like because there's, there's a difference between you know long-term saving where, where which is you know that, that's true for stock market right in, 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 generally a financial advisor would say well you know don't don't put money into the into stock market that you need to spend within three years or something like that right and so you know a lot of people have a modest amount of savings or you know they spend most of the money they get every month like so I guess what people are saying is that is is that going to be challenging to is bitcoin volatility going to be challenging and what could they do about it Uh, I just want to say I
0: love that you're following along in the live chat and answering everyone's questions jack you're going to answer that
1: uh how to stomach uh bitcoin's volatility is it a problem
2: well, they t- they're talking about sort of emerging markets where people might not have a <clears> lot of savings, you know. Let's say they're spending 90% of the money they get each month. They get it in. They don't want it to, you know, jump around plus 10% a week, which Bitcoin will do at times.
1: Um, yeah, I think I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a reality, though. You know, the pro- like the general problem or like part of the imperfection that we're living through is that bitcoin isn't accurately priced yet which we talked about on stage very briefly is like i don't think the world totally understands how to price a money that's definitively scarce and accessible to everybody it's a very difficult thing for humanity to understand and price and so it's going through its journey of it's worth 60,000 it's worth 3,000 it's worth and eventually it will be worth probably you know all the collective monetary value Hopefully, I'll be alive for that. Maybe not. But along that journey implies volatility. It's just humanity's natural mapping to try and understand its worth to us functioning as a species. So, I think it's just a reality, and I think the free market will figure it out. Like someone will want to save their like collective output and their their savings and their money in their life in Bitcoin, and then it'll go down, and they'll be like, "Shit, I can't get a double cheeseburger. I have to get a single cheeseburger." And then they'll right. learn. They'll learn to manage their, you know, risk tolerance appropriately and but it really uh, it's depends. Natural. It depends how much in savings you have, right? Yeah, I mean it's a concept of like working capital. So if I make $10 a week and I run my life on $5 a week, $5 is working capital that I need to sustain my lifestyle and $5 I could if I want, I can save it. And so what Adam is saying and he's right is that There's a lot of people in the world that don't have non-working capital, capital that they're bringing in that they can save. All the capital, like very close to all the capital that they're making needs to be put in to operate their life, very low income. And so the problem is if I make $10 and then I need that $10 to live every single week and all of a sudden the $10 is worth $2, then the quality of my life is is diminished and it's fucked and I can't eat or my son can't take the bus or whatever the problem is. And solving that is difficult, right? Like, I mean... There's instruments like Tether or like, I mean, we're all trying to collectively build shit to help this transition of humanity, understanding Bitcoin and valuing Bitcoin and serving and improving people's qualities of life with these tools. But these are just, you know, natural problems and we try and solve them. So.
0: well, There's a couple of things to unpack. I kind of want to go deep on this one um, because I think it's important. Um, You know, like obviously, we we see anyone who's done any kind of work in the emerging markets. You know, I've been working with HRF for five years now. I think uh, training activists, and there there is a heavy demand for dollars, right? Uh, their shitcoin, their national fiat is is significantly worse than dollars, um, even though dollars are designed to lose value over time. Um, you know, they they want access to dollars, and they want to. To, to hold those dollars at least in the short term to, to try and escape that, that volatility of their own fiat and also the volatility of Bitcoin. Um, but the main issue is that it's impossible to hold dollars without trust. Like dollars are inherently a centralized system. Um, whether you go to all the way to the creation of dollars or if you go to however you're holding and using dollars, they require centralized platforms. Even something like tether, which is essentially you know this like shadow bank, uh, U.S. dollar shadow bank, like you are trusting the Tether Corporation or whoever's running the Tether Corporation, uh, that they will not rug you. Now, Bitcoin is extremely unique in that lack of counterparty risk. Most of the world has not really realized that yet. I think they don't really realize it until they get rugged over and over again, um, kind of in that situation. But it's it's important to to isolate that that key difference. And on like on that topic, what I would really like to go down a little bit of a hole with Adam, since we're so privileged to have him here. I mean, Adam, um, you know, you're one of the original cypherpunks. Your uh, your whole group of of friends uh, and contributors over there tried to create digital like trust minimized money for a while, and a lot of people think Bitcoin was the first. A lot of people think Bitcoin was the first one, and. I, I, I'm curious in your opinion, you know, why and it wasn't the first one. Uh there were many failed projects before Bitcoin. And I'm curious in your opinion, you know, why is Bitcoin why has Bitcoin been successful so far in this adoption uh where the others failed?
2: Yeah, I mean there was the digicash one, I think, you know, it failed because it was centralized. <laughs> so and it and it and it was a it was a stable coin, basically. So, so their problem was the technology they were playing with, this is Chom's eCash protocol, it requires a central database. You have to trust it not to print more money than it says it does. But you have extremely good privacy and it's highly scalable. And and actually something like Cashew, which is a Fediment version, is actually approximately the same tech, right? But Bitcoin dominate. So they, they built this tech, it, people were very excited about it. Very optimistic about having privacy for money on the internet. A lot, a lot of enthusiasm, right? So, kind of like Bitcoin, but it, never, it didn't grow big enough because it it failed in its early stages because that their company went bankrupt, and then the double space, double spend database, which was centralized, was lost. So you couldn't tell if the coin you had was spent or not. So it was game over, right? So you know people people saw that, and 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 the other their other problem was. They needed, you know, permission from a bank because their idea was, well, you know, you 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 wire transfers the money and you convert it into coins, you transact it backwards and forwards, then you wire it out, you know, you you burn it and you wire it out. So it's exactly like tether or something, right? But but with with a partnership with a bank, which is hard to get. So it had the you know, seek permission problem. Right. So um when people saw that go down in flames, oh, and and the other curious thing there is, is they ran a demo server that they promised they'd only issue a million units of and were, the name was like something bucks. and so a bunch of us like messing around on the Cypherpunks list figured well we can, we can bootstrap it to have a value, we can just start selling stuff for it, like giving it away to have a value, but if we treat it as a dollar, there's only a million of them, it will start having a floating value it will be worth a dollar and, and we started, like, you know, I sold some, some of those RSA encryption T-shirts and other people sold, like, I don't know, PDFs so or just, just stuff, right? And we got a few weeks into that and the company went bankrupt. So it's like the end of that. But, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting because, you know, talking to some economically, you know, monetary economics theory people, you know, in a, in a like 2013 era on Bitcoin, they have, they have some kind of mantra, which they take as an axiom, I think of one of the branches of economics that, you know, a money can't be a money unless it first starts as a scarce commodity and Bitcoin didn't. And I'm like, but why? You know, like that, that's just an observation about history that doesn't seem like an axiom to me. And, you know, effectively people try to bootstrap something that didn't have a commodity value with this DigiCache demo server, because there was no connection to a bank, right? So anyway, like after all that failed, people were like super sad that it failed and trying to figure out what to do to build an electronic cash system. And so they, the lessons they drew from it, and this, this would be like, you know, Nick Sabo, Wei Dai, a bunch bunch of like applied crypto people and privacy tech people sitting around talking on online. Um was well, it's got to be de- it's got to be decentralized because look, the centralized thing just failed, right? So it has to be survivable. It has to be decentralized, and then uh, not so long after that, I proposed Hashcash initially as a kind of postage stamp to stop to make to create a cost for spam, and so I think that that seemed to grab lots of people at the same time. That oh, this is like digital gold. How could you control the inflation? And you know, oh you could you could mine coins with this, then you don't need a you know you don't need a partnership with a bank. That'll that'll be good for decentralization. But I think basically, you know, and that's what B Money and Bitgold, which were like a year later, so Hashcash was ninety-seven, uh, Bit Money, Bitgold and B Money were ninety-eight, were basically designs of how to sort of create scarcity, you know, sort of control the inflation right? Cause, Cause if you think about it, you, you've got, you know, you can use your computer to print some money and you say like, well, a stamp is worth a cent or it's worth whatever the market says. And then people just go nuts and they print trillions of them. Right. And computers get faster. So people were kind of, you know, wow, this thing's going to hyperinflate. It's, it's cool that there's digital gold, but how do we, how do I, how do, how do you engineer it to be stable? And that, and that, you know, uh, Bookhold and B money were kind of sketches and not not you know they involve too much human judgment like you know groups groups of humans like a super node or humans would decide a policy or people would have to do, operate some specialized market and so you know basically that's what Satoshi cracked and uh, nobody everybody else figured it out right which is well just forget about that just just have the the protocol the computer system control the rate of supply and let go of this concept that you want. You know, stable value, and let the market figure out what it's worth. And you know, it looks it looks super simple and elegant. Now we see it, but nobody made and people tried, right? But nobody managed to figure that out before. So I think things always look clearer afterwards, like say.
0: I mean, so to distill it, it's this idea of a native a native digital bearer token, so not like pegged to a dollar. Yeah. Um, this idea of proof of work, which was originally shown in hash cash. And then this idea of a difficulty adjustment, which regulates the new supply of Bitcoin, depending on how much, uh, work is going into the system. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it recently in a slightly different way, which is that hash cash stamps are, you know, if, if that was the building block, let's say it was physical and you found these little things lying around on the ground and you're know, like it's scarce. And we say like, well, yeah, there's not an infinite number of them, but there's sure lots of them and people are creating them faster and faster, right? That's the technology you're playing with. And then somehow you have to make it say it's, you know, it's a lot more scarce. And that's what Satoshi came up with, which is, you know, I guess to define that in each period, you know, it takes a million, uh, I guess Bitcoin's base difficulty is uh, what like... $2 Two billion to uh, to make a coin, and that's a starting point, right? So it's saying that e- in each period, the system is going to automatically require more stamps worth of work to create some coins, and that's it, right? So you couldn't—I don't think you can really do that with a physical system, but because Bitcoin is digital, you can program things that wouldn't. You know, I mean, to, to build that physically would be some kind of, you know, uh, physical like computer or something, right? It's like extremely, uh, I guess people had the idea of Babbage engines, like, you know, computers with gears and they'd have a physical artifact that has to communicate globally. It's it's just like, you know, kind of steampunk tech, which we can't build yet because you can't make computers on that scale. So, so basically, it takes digital computers to turn this somewhat scarce thing into a really hard scarce thing. And that's effectively that kind of um, the advantage of software as a control system enabled, you know, humans to discover digital gold, I mean, Bitcoin. I I like to consider it a discovery, even though, you know, it's actually invented the key parts of it. But I think it's, one of the reasons I think it's interesting to think about is the discovery, because in the years since Satoshi released it, nobody really found a way to materially improve it. Right? You know, they they optimised bits of it, but nothing major you change about it improves it. It just makes it worse or more complicated or more fragile. And people tried, and that that's actually really surprising, right? So it's kind of like DNA. You know, you swap out some protein, and it it falls apart. It doesn't bond properly, and that. You know, it's, it's basically completely stable and you can't really improve it and everything you do makes it worse. That's that's not what you expect for technology, but that's, that's the kind of artifact of a discovery, right? You find some mathematical thing and that is kind of dependable and axiomatic and a unique thing that stands alone. So I find it really interesting.
0: I mean... Jack, I know if you have any questions for Adam, you're welcome to ask him questions directly too. Um, Adam, I mean, I I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but so I mean, you were on the cyberpunk mailing list, um, you saw all this development happening, uh, but you weren't really sold on Bitcoin in the beginning, right? Am I? like uh,
2: it- Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I had some initial reactions. Like one is it's not very private because Chorm's system was like super private right it's complete unlinkability mathematical guaranteed unlinkability so that's one thing and then you know the other thing i'll say well you know at least it's decentralized and it's it's survivable so you know that that was what caused digicash to to fail right so it's got a shot but then the next question is well okay, like he seems to have solved the problem that nobody solved before. So that's cool. And maybe, you know, maybe people can prove it, you know, improve the privacy or something over time. And, and that's what I ended up trying to do later, right? With uh, confidential transactions and stuff like that. But the open question in like late, late 2008 and then when he released the source code in 2009 is, well, you know, will it, will it bootstrap a price? Like, will it get enough users to sustain a price and to have a market because it, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't even, I heard about it in 2008, I wasn't kind of one of the tinkerers who wants to understand by doing, I'll just read it or, right. or read somebody else's description. Okay. I get it. Like more like that, but you know, for the people that did tinker with it, a good, a good thing to sort of get an idea of how that would have felt is to read Dustin Trammell's or listen listen to it, some podcasts he's done and he was describing what it was. He was mining like in super early in 2009 and it's like super desolate, right? There's sort of hobbyists, mining. After a while, they got bored and went off to do something else. You know, a few people, you know, like debugging things or, you know, just, just sending them around for fun, right? There's literally no price. There's nothing you can buy with them. And, you know, then then after a while, you have this, you know, probably half-billion-dollar pizza by now or something, right? As a kind of first commercial transaction, which is a bit like the the Cypherpunk... Uh, let's sell t-shirts to see if we can give it a value. So I think it probably just did it for, a, you know, an amusement, right? For a giggle, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy a pizza, send me so many, you know, I'll pay you so many thousands of Bitcoin or something. Um, so yeah, it was a kind of an open question. So I was like, well, let's, let's wait and see, right? And so, you know, I was like keeping an eye, reading bits, talking to friends about it, saying like, this is really cool, trying to persuade you know, some applied crypto people I knew who worked on electronic cash, you know, to like look at it, start start researching and see if they could improve it, and they're, they're none of them seemed very enthusiastic actually. And you know, I, I, I wasn't very organized, so I didn't buy as early as I I could have, obviously. Um, but I was just kind of looking in the background, you know, and and um, you you get the odd bit of news bubble up about oh it reached a dollar or it reached a hundred dollars, and I was like, I mean, actually a hundred dollars that's there's actually quite a lot of money. I guess I guess you've got to count that as a bootstrap event, right? You know, there's there's a, a market or two by then. So then I um, because I was like, well, if it, it's, it's just a hobby thing, unless it bootstraps, so I want to see if it would bootstrap, right? And so then I got more involved. You know, start, started reading more. I don't think the white paper describes the smart contracts. I found out about them. Uh, found found out where the developers were hanging out to ask all kinds of details about how it works, you know, because when you, when you start, you end up, you have some like misconceptions and there wasn't a lot of documentation. So I read everything I could find and I still had all, all kinds of questions about just basics, how it works, right? And um, yeah, so then I did what everybody does, right? Went went nuts, right? Down the rabbit <laughs> hole, this is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, started block stream, like pretty much, you know, within... Less than a year after that, like six months or something. What year was that? 2013. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Really fascinating journey. Thank you for walking us through that.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, people say, you know, about that early, but I felt like embarrassingly late when I finally like jumped into it. Right.
0: Well, there is, is there something there? And I wonder if Jack uh, would co-sign this. I mean, when I first got into Bitcoin, it was around that same time like the 2013 era. Um, and I thought I was incredibly late, right? Like mm-hmm. there was, I was way late. And then like you stay in it for a certain pound of time. And then at, at some point later in the journey, ironically enough, you end up realizing we're incredibly early. So it was like five years. It's like, I'm like sitting there in 2018, like everyone just lost their cool on ICOs and just got completely wrecked. Um, and I'm like in twenty eighteen, I'm like, holy shit, we're just still incredibly early. Like it's not it's not even it's not even close.
1: Uh yeah, I, Adam, I'm curious. I got into Bitcoin uh 2013. I have a funny story um about my dad that's resonating here, and you tell yours, but I'm curious, Adam, how important was Silk Road do you think? I have a, I have an opinion on this. But oh, I yeah, think people probably. don't appreciate that. Let's yeah, go.
2: probably pretty important. I mean, actually I was, you know, I guess WikiLeaks was another thing, right? So yep. WikiLeaks was getting on the news and then I saw the name Julian Assange and I was like, wait a minute, I know that name. Because he he was a like moderately active poster on the cypherpunks and had implemented I mean the cypunks like to implement like privacy and you know encryption and he implemented this kind of Encrypted file system, which is like TrueCrypt, where you had hidden partitions that you couldn't tell if they were there. You know, so there was always another potential of another password and another partition. So and you know, they 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 were getting debanked. And so they kind of involuntarily went all in Bitcoin. And of course, that you know, that made WikiLeaks fantastically funded after some years, which is kind of a nice irony. But yeah, I think Silk Road, you know, it's often the case that a gray market um, Adopts technology earlier, you know, like, um, like uh, pornography was. Yeah, pornography was an early, you know, thing on the internet, right? People would say, "Oh, the internet's only used for watching porn or something," but it's because they're innovators, right? They grab a tech, you know, maybe they're frowned on industries, they have trouble, you know, they get interfered with by the establishment, and so they adopt, right? And you know, of course. Drugs and grey market goods of various descriptions—it's a, it's a risky area to conduct commerce in, right? So they can actually innovate. And I, I think another another example of people that ended up on Bitcoin early for uh, due due to having a bad experience with banking is um, people that play online poker, which is like kind of another grey market thing. Like maybe you're not allowed to do it technically, but you know if they want to. So, you got these kind of poker players that ended up with Bitcoin and became Bitcoiners. That was a big one way. for me.
0: I got yeah. rugged in the Black Tuesday or whatever when they cut off all the financial access to the online poker sites. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of uh, like Cyprus crisis um, back in the day was a huge Bitcoin validation point. There, I, I think the Silk Road w- was, at least for me and my dad, and like was so important to Bitcoin being successful, um, you have to solve this liquidity problem. You know, like Adam is calling it bootstrapping. It's, yeah, that's right. Is that it has to be a market. It has to be liquid or else it doesn't solve what money is intended to solve as we've been talking about. And so it found liquidity in really interesting niche ways out of people needing it for necessity. Like, you right? And so... I'm I'm a free Ross guy for a lot of reasons, but uh, I do not think it's greatly understood and appreciated how important Silk Road was to Bitcoin's inevitable success. I think it's like a really misunderstood part of the story, in my opinion.
0: We were talking about circular economy earlier. Um, And by the way, I'm wearing my BTC pay tag. Uh, which I think is crucial to uh, having a robust oh, yeah. censorship-resistant circular economy where you don't have to rely on centralized third parties in order to accept Bitcoin for goods and services. But Silk Road was like the key g- example of, of what makes that kind of system. Like Silk Road was obviously centralized, but I would say like Silk Road got shut down and then you know, a million flowers bloomed after that, right? There's tons of other dark markets that emerged after that fact but uh, in the early days of RHR, me and Marty had um, a Silk Road vendor on, um, and he told us his story. Mm -hmm. So he actually- Great episode.
1: You remember that one?
0: He got (laughs) Yeah, uh, the forced
1: huddle. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) he got
0: thrown in jail. He got thrown in jail, did his time in jail, and then came out and was listening to Rabbit Hole Recap and was like, I would love to come on the show. So we talked to him. And I remember one key tenant that I'll always remember was, um, he would buy drugs on Silk Road with Bitcoin, right? And, um, and he would sell drugs on Silk Road with Bitcoin. But to get out of the Bitcoin, to, to get the Bitcoin into something that he could actually purchase goods and services in person, his best way of, of essentially converting that Bitcoin into something he can purchase with was to then buy drugs on Silk Road and then sell it in person so he would get dollars and then use those dollars to buy something. So like he was actually... There was actually a full circular economy there, where the in and out of getting in and out of Bitcoin was buying goods and services and selling goods and services.
1: Yeah, he took. I think yeah, he was taking his Bitcoin profit and buying a bunch of weed and then selling weed locally, right? For and dollars, cash, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, but more particular, like at least the Chicago trading industry. Like, I think people are generally pretty familiar with my background and like my dad's a trader silk road was important though to solidify that bitcoin was legit to those guys so like let me tell you what i mean for traders and like people like you know everyone here in chicago they built the agriculture commodity risk transfer market it's hugely important to society functioning so that was a bunch of word salad that just means like corn futures right it's like the futures industry is here and the commodities that get produced and that we consume like are priced and traded largely here. And so these guys have a deep understanding of money. And when they heard, like when my dad heard that there is a money that's definitively scarce, it's digital so that it's programmable. So you could engineer it to be the best and it's digital and in, in that it can be accessible by everybody on planet earth. It's native to the internet. That's just such a natural winner when you hear that, but how like it sounds too good to be true. And when they couldn't shut down Silk Road, they they shut down Silk Road not because they could stop Bitcoin. Was when everyone here in Chicago was like, "Oh, this thing's going to be worth a billion, trillion, quadrillion dollars." Just because if they couldn't stop this college kid slinging drugs, um, they're not going to be able to inflate it either. And that is when the CME and my dad and all, all Donnie Wilson, all of these guys started to like start building their Bitcoin position of like, this thing's just going up. Like there's like, cause they're not technical. They're not Adam back. And so I'll never forget. I think like my dad logged on to the dark web. My fucking father's like middle-aged man with four <laughs> kids. and And he's, he goes on and he's like, I'm going to try and buy drugs with this thing because if this is real and they can't shut this thing down. And back in the day, it was like, Flaunting in the face of authority is Ross was like really in everyone's face about it. He was doing like interviews with media, like fuck you guys. And they couldn't figure out how to shut it down. And all the traders were like, if they can't shut it down now, they're never going to be able to, this thing's going to be definitively scarce. This thing is gonna, and that, so it was just such a critical moment for Bitcoin and it validated like people don't, I don't think people necessarily appreciate what that did for the confidence and the early liquidity of the thing. Cause then everyone realized like, oh, there's not going to be more than 21 million. And, 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 it does as, as it's marketed. Ridge, so it's a c- crucial part, at least my Bitcoin trade.
0: So that's an interesting perspective. So you're saying the, the, a lesson that a lot of people took from that was that you could shut down Silk Road, but you couldn't shut down Bitcoin. If they could shut down Bitcoin, they would have shut down Bitcoin and they couldn't at that Correct. point.
1: Correct. So you like so. My dad spent his life in building markets, um, building futures markets, understanding money deeply. And so, when hearing Adam talk about Satoshi, I think the most impressive thing about Satoshi is their understanding of money. They had such a sophisticated Adam's right. It's a, such a sophisticated understanding that this needed to be a commodity. It had to have a commodity premium to produce, and that it should be priced naturally as a commodity. And so it was really Satoshi's like depth of understanding of money. That was for me the most impressive. And so my dad heard about it from a guy named Mike Krieger. It was a a Duke university blog and Mike Krieger's awesome. Liberty Blitz. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone should go read Mike's shit. So I think Mike wrote something in 2012 and my dad was just a reader of his blog. And my dad was like, well, Holy shit, there's supposedly a new money that's definitively scarce native to the internet. And it's digital and bearer, so you can engineer it to be the best fucking thing ever. He's been around money his whole life. He was like, wow, that sounds awesome, but too good to be true. And then when he watched in Silk Road flaunting everyone's face that you could go online and buy any drug you want, like it was Amazon, and there's nothing the authorities could do about it because this Bitcoin thing, and they got to Silk Road, but not through Bitcoin. He was like, oh, it's worked it works as advertised. That means if they can't shut it down and construe it there, then they're not going to be able to inflate the, the asset. They're not going to be able to over-govern it. They're it. No one, no one can turn this thing off, and there's only going to be 21 million of them. And then I dropped out of college, and he was like, uh, you and me, buddy, we got to get as many of these fucking things as we can. <laughs> and that's what we did. But it was, the, it was that moment where – and then right after that was Cyprus crisis. And it was those type of moments where traders here in Chicago were like, oh, that, like because we don't under like back in the day now I do but we didn't understand cryptography and shit I mean yeah. my dad would like walk me to school and he was like the coach of my baseball team he didn't have, he didn't understand what Adam back was writing on Bitcoin talk but once he saw that they couldn't shut this thing off even if people were slinging heroin with it he was like oh they're like this thing's gonna be a huge winner and uh, yeah that's I think it is cr- critical part to Bitcoin's story
2: yeah curious Great how, marketing you're talking about the <laughs> The scarcity, and it's it's one of the things that, you know, because it's interesting to look at smart newcomers when they, they get involved in Bitcoin, you know, whenever it is, you know, 2014 or 2022, 2023, they will add a little bit. And, and I think understanding new technologies is a kind of group thing, like a societal thing. So as you get more people understanding and commenting on it, it affects people who thought they knew it for years, but, you know, it's sort of tweaking their adjusting their understanding a little bit. So I think it's kind of group exercise. You, you can think about it like, you know, early grappling with electricity or new concepts, right? It, it was just mind bending to people until they got used to it. And then it became like a simple fact that everybody takes for granted. So I think we're still in that kind of stage, right? Because it's really something fundamental and different and unusual. that didn't really exist before. And so one of the things that, you know, people... Even even programmers or like you know people understand the internet architecture really well. They're like, well, how can it be scarce? You know, that's just mind boggling that right? Something that's digital could be scarce. And so, I think Michael Saylor added something novel to that story. You know, he says things in a kind of poetic way, but he's like, Bitcoin is a portal, like from you know cyberspace to the physical world or something, and. You know that, that sort of says it all, right? Which is the only reason it, that Bitcoin is scarce is it there's a sort of hard requirement that something very physical industrial happens in a physical world. So it's literally the the it's got a connection to the physical scarcity, and somehow the protocol, which doesn't understand or know anything, is like mathematically tied into that. And that that trick or like that that kind of combined effect is is what makes it possible um, and what makes it unique. So I think, you know, it's a very curious phenomenon that's unique amongst anything else digital, really. So that's that's. That's why. you,
1: man. I mean, you're describing proof of works necessity to Bitcoin working. That's you. That's your work. Well, yeah. but you am excited for it. Yeah, but I think kind of the. <laughs> that's why you're the fucking man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. But I mean, I
2: think like. <laughs> Even though like we understand that and we've been, you know, playing in it for getting on for a decade, right? Sailor comes along like a couple of years ago and expresses it in that way. And you know, it's sort of thinking about it in a simpler way or in a different way, or in a way that, that can make sense to people who are not, you know, into their bits and bytes and programming and you know, machine code and stuff like that. So totally. it's it's very interesting because people are. It's a sort of fundamental new building block, right? A digitally scarce thing, and it's scarce because it's connected to the physical world. And and like the fact that it, like the Bitcoin drives, that's all sort of driven by economic incentive, it's kind of marshalling millions of humans around the world to adapt their ingenuity to like improve it and strengthen it and react to its economic forces. So even though it's like a very simple inanimate thing, it has some kind of combined... You know, magical effects on you know everybody gets drawn into it. So it's really a kind of funny phenomenon, right? Like that. I think that that's why you know we can understand it at some levels, but you know, at the combined human and psychological level, it's still sort of evolving how people think about it. Uh, yeah.
1: Totally. Is there something wrong with my internet? What is wrong? Am I coming through? What? I see the comments. We well, can see uh,
2: you. your audio is fine. I think your your resolution is fluctuating a little. That's all. Yeah, you were in a uh, you were in a rant
0: earlier, and I laughed, and I think you thought I was laughing at your rant, but I was laughing at uh, someone called your camera a potato, and then someone made a Greg Zaj reference. Um, oh shit! That, that your camera is Greg. You look fine. You're fine. Don't worry about it. This is a great conversation.
1: Um. Yeah. No. I think. I think we should talk about proof of work and its necessity because i don't think it's well understood uh, maybe it is to the listeners but more broadly in the world why proof of stake doesn't make any sense and literally uninvents the invention but uh i think you're right too adam in that uh, another like really amazing insight that seems simple in hindsight but was so genius from satoshi is the monetary policy that they ended up going with it in sense it 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 drives a natural network effect. Is that you issue a lot initially? It's kind of the idea of that. You know, if the if the issuance was was fair and flat across the board, then I can just kind of wait. I, like I don't get rewarded for being early, so I can just kind of wait to see if it works. Um, you know what I mean? And, and what Satoshi was able to do is kind of say, you know, if you come early and you contribute to this thing working then you're going to get paid big time compared to the guy that comes 10 years later and that was it was designed that way and so he does create this natural network effect and you're still seeing it today like michael saylor thinks that he can build a bigger position than apple uh, because he's earlier and he's going to contribute to his position and make bitcoin better and go around the media and so that network effect and Apple's probably going to come five to ten years later than sailor and you're seeing it, so it was in the design. Satoshi Satoshi solved that very elegantly, in the monetary policy he chose. Yeah. Pretty cool.
2: I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think it's interesting. Like, if there's a number of things people say, which are kind of observations about how things have gone for a lot of different people. But, you know, I think Lena Sish, the the lady that makes the uh, cartoons with the Bitcoin hodlers, she she mm-hmm. has one about you know you were so lucky, you know, you you bought Bitcoin early and you're lucky. But, you know, as, as Eric Weiss observed, you know, and lots of people had a similar experience, they, they like, you know, got scared by the volatility or they weren't sure if it was going to make it or, you know, they sold or they lost or they mismanaged the coins or failed to back up. There's so many ways people can go wrong. And so actually, you know, Matt's, uh, Stay humble slack, sats is good advice because people get like too too emotional and then they, they shake themselves out. You gotta you gotta like find out a way emotionally to deal with the volatility and not get shaken out. Because otherwise you you know, you have your you know the gadget or the t shirt you bought that you regret because uh, you you know it, it was expensive and you didn't replace the Bitcoin or you know, you tried your hand at trading and that always goes wrong too, right? So you think, yeah. It's there is there is an element of luck, but there's also, you know, the determination or or whatever it is to get in a mode of thinking where you're just going to keep buying and holding and averaging, because you know, people who trade tend to lose over time. It's it's a very dangerous thing to trade, right? And I am, um, you know, thought about this, you know, probably in. 2013 sometime that you know this this thing is going up on an exponential rate and this is before I'd read this stat that bitcoin if you take out the 12 biggest gains in a year it goes down every year so before that but you know it's it's going up exponentially with high volatility so do you really want to sell it and try and time the market because you can just see that it's that the odds are against you right it's like it's like playing you know, there's a house betting against you or something, it is going up exponentially and you want to time the market, you're going to lose. Statistically, if you do it enough times, you're just going to lose time after time after time. So you, you get it. Okay, Just not a good idea. Let's not do that uh, or, you know, get smarter about it or something. Um, but the, you know, the 12, 12 days a year is, uh, that, that's something else, right? So that is a another reason why trading is a bad idea.
0: I agree. Do, I agree. Do you guys think my my thesis is that um, Bitcoin is volatile because it's going through this adoption phase, um, but long term that volatility edges out. Are, do you guys operate on the same thought
2: process? Well, there? I mean, yeah. So, so you know, I guess like Amazon stock like went up and down a lot and had some dismal periods, right? And that, that happens with early technology things, but you know, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to get like super stable because you know I used to own gold as part of my stock trading and efforts to uh, save in, in, a, in a world with fake inflation numbers, right? And um, yeah, I think it's uh, that gold still has volatility right, in, in the short term. And so, you know, maybe Bitcoin would too. But the other, the other thing is I think part of the volatility is kind of our own fault, you know, like the collective group behavior of Bitcoiners is, is partly what causes the, the volatility if you think about it, because, you know, if nobody's got any fiat left and, you know, something crazy is going on in the market, some DeFi is failing, somebody, some company was leveraged or they get liquidated in a big loan, and somebody's out in the market trying to protect their assets because they were a the lender, you know, market selling thousands of Bitcoin and we've got no money left, so we can't buy it. Right? So they push the price down. Eventually somebody finds some money or wires some money or gets some resolve together and they buy it up and the price comes back. But if you look at that compared to what happens with value stocks, um, there are all these funds, you know, like pension funds, and they're analysts, and they're looking at the quarterly reports, and they've got, you know, below this price, this is a buy, above this price, it's a sell, it's overweight, underweight, this kind of thing, right? And they've got, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars sitting around, reallocating shares, and they've got a value uh, thesis. And so if something goes down, they'll buy it up. So, so they'll sort of smooth the volatility, right? And we've got a the value thesis. You know, we want more Bitcoin, but we we don't have uh, the other assets to to reallocate when it gets overweight weak because we're all in. And so if you're all in, it's very hard to help stabilize. So I used, I used to do a bit of, uh, I still do a bit of, uh, you know, buying a dip and then selling it back, you know, once price recovered. Now, you, you know, you've got to be prepared to hold it for the long term if you're doing that because it can just keep going down for... You know, a year or so, but I think that that does help a bit. It's just kind of decentralized market making or something. Yeah,
0: but, but beyond yeah. beyond that, right? Like when when Bitcoin is the absolute standard, when Sats are the standard, when when you're the majority of your savings are in Bitcoin, when you work in Bitcoin, you earn you earn Sats. When you know houses are priced in Sats, when water is priced in Sats, when everything is 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 bitcoinized like wouldn't the volatility yeah. wouldn't it be like the most stable money that's ever existed probably, in human probably
2: yeah i mean because there was, there was a long period in history right where gold was the international unit of account right for yeah. civilization for thousands of years so and apparently you know looked at on a long term that is extremely like, remarkably price stable you know like you can you know, buy a you know a loaf of bread or you know just just random things for about the same price you know from the Roman times or something, which is insane, right? So that that shows it can be done. Um, so maybe we're just looking at the wrong comparables, and it's the uh, it's the fiat currencies that are moving around, or longer term anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I th- I mean m- markets. Uh, Like drive price discovery. That's why they exist for, you know, the market to deem what something is worth. Um, And so volatility in Bitcoin is just people trying to figure out how valuable it is. And so it's kind of like a proxy to people's cons- like us as humanity, it, our collective understanding of what it is, why it's valuable and then how valuable it is relative to society and i think as that becomes more and more understood volatility goes down and volatility has gone down and i think it's just a function of the world understanding it and accurately pricing it so yeah i think you're right when bitcoin is the only money and we live our entire lives on on bitcoin and it's well understood that it's the most performant uh for what we want money to be then yeah it'll be extremely well understood and really efficiently and effectively priced It's probably mostly until then. Yeah. No, you're right. It's
2: probably mostly the adoption that is driving the volatility right now, right? Once once you reach saturation, I think you're both right and it will get stable Yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: I think the volatility today, in my opinion, is driven by what's happening at the Fed, the mismanagement. I mean, because it's not just Bitcoin that's volatile, it's I mean everything. No, like the world doesn't understand basically the way money works today, unfortunately, because we should talk about like gold was allowing society to be so efficient atoms like for thousands of years it like wasn't volatile at all. people were able to focus on living their lives and exchanging you know money with each other via gold, and then it broke, and we have fiat and the way fiat works is the Fed deems how valuable the dollar is and so everyone's just right now confused at how the fed is going to be valuing the dollar and how much the dollar's actually worth and that's the world just collectively trying to figure that out you know if the fed puts interest rates back at zero then the dollar's like worthless and it's going to hike forever if the fed keeps hiking rates then the dollar's going to artificially get stronger and they're caught in an awful situation because they're stupid and they fucked up um and it's broken and uh i think the the volatility in the world right now is just th- like trying to price the potential outcomes and bitcoin's just a victim of that just like everything is like there's volatility in my in the eggs i get from whole foods <laughs> like no one knows how to price anything because the fed just mismanaged everything that's just What's, unfortunate reality. it's a
0: combo it's a combination right like there is it's a it's a function of the liquidity of bitcoin and how much bitcoin has been adopted but then as that adoption curve goes up like as more people adopt bitcoin as bitcoin becomes even more liquid then the only volatility left remaining would be the world is is inherently volatile place so if it's the world's money there's going to be some volatility based on what's happening at any given time but it should be significantly reduced i think significantly reduced yeah. from where it is today
1: but yeah but I think you know there needs to be a delay like you need to divide Bitcoin's not a company it's not an equity it's not a stock right. and so bi- Bitcoin understanding bitcoin's price is not based on cash earnings you know like Apple could be volatile so comparing Bitcoin to Amazon isn't actually a perfect comparison because Amazon's volatility, could have to do with the macroeconomic environment. Could have to do with adoption curves. It could have to do with their quarterly earnings because, like, Amazon is a business and they deliver shit that you order online. And if they don't do a good job at that, it could be volatile. But Bitcoin as a commodity, um, there's no earnings or any. It, it's it's you know speculating on on that. It's not in its nature. It's just the world understanding what it is, why it's valuable, and then collectively agreeing how to value it which may take a hundred years um but yeah i just think bitcoin's miss not not it's the maturity in which it's understood um is not great which is, is shown in the market is that like some people think it's worth 60k some people think it's worth 3k and that's just there are inefficiencies there and uh it'll get more. some people think it's time.
0: worth a million
1: Exactly. Right. And, and the market, the free market will figure that out. Um, but yeah. And I, and, you know, I think too, like I actually am really excited for Bitcoin's price performance over the next few years because of like, this is the first time I think Bitcoin in Bitcoin's life that we'll see how it performs on the back half of uh yeah, like central bank mismanagement. And I know I am over-indexing on the Fed. I, I saw that comment. Someone said, I'm over-indexing on the Fed. It's Congress, too. It's true. It's just the general mismanagement of monetary policy throughout the world. Uh, Bitcoin was born after 08. Um, And so this is the first time it'll be alive, I think. I don't know what to expect. I don't know how to price it, but I think it's gonna. this is going to be wild.
2: So... Uh... So how are we going to onboard the next billion users? How do we get them uncensorable, unseizable Bitcoin ownership?
1: I don't know. I mean, you and I are trying to fucking figure that out, right? We run these yeah. companies. Layer twos. Trying to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think some people get stuck in a kind of central planning mindset, but you know, Bitcoin is a market. And so, you know, all you can do is, and, and there, are, there are competing technologies always, right? So people have an idea, they build they build the idea, the market adopts or it doesn't adopt it. Sometimes the market adopts things only when there's pain experienced. And so you saw some kind of rapid, spontaneous adoption of, I mean, actually the fee market spiked, as you all know, like, I don't know, like a week mm. or so ago, right? And it seems to be coming down again now. But it was causing problems for uh this company called bolts Exchange. And they have an atomic submarine swap between Bitcoin to rebalance, like to draw funds out of or add funds to a lightning channel as an alternative to splicing or creating a new channel. I guess it's slightly more efficient in like fees or something. But like the fees were were breaking it, right? They're doing this in bulk and they were not having a good time. So within the space of a week, they made a liquid version of it. So the channels are on, the channels are the same, right? They're, they're on-chain uh, Bitcoin lightning channels, but they have an atomic swap from liquid Bitcoin. So you can, you know, if you run out of capacity, you can sort of push it back towards you by paying somebody else to send it to you. So it's just a, you know you, you if you're in person you could give them a hundred dollar note and say like send me send me a hundred dollars off my capacity back right so it's kind of like that right so you know you can just you can sort of and it's still atomic because it's using the same mechanism and it was funny because you know you saw the evolution right they were tweeting uh, the is down the fees have you know broken it and like a short blog while they work on it and then they were on a telegram channel with a beta, but they're saying, don't, you know, I was like, are you going to tweet about that? And I'm like, no, no, we we're still like working on bugs. We, you, you guys can test it in a channel and we'll, we'll we'll fix the bugs. And then I think like a day or two ago, they tweeted it. And now there are like translations in multiple languages of how to do it and stuff. So it just shows you that, you know, because people have a sort of central planning view that, oh, you know, you've got to, you've got to like have massive blocks or you've got to do this or you, you must do that. But, you know, the fact is, They made that happen in a week because they had a problem right so you know i think it's just the way the market works right that um you know people will develop subjective views about you know is that a good use of block space you know like gifs or something right or or ordinals or inscriptors but you know the person that pays the highest fees will take the space and there's nothing you can do about it and so, you know, you can, you can get depressed about it and say, well, each time, you know, these rich guys that are collecting GIFs and paying $200 to post a GIF, they're, you know, pushing 100 UTXOs out of out of the box chain, right? Now, you know, there's 100 people in emerging markets that can't own a UTXO, and it's just money. But you can't, you, can't you, won't, you won't achieve anything by complaining about it, because, you know, firstly, they're monetizing you complaining, right? So, you know, just wait until they get bored. Um, and you can't build a layer two for them to store the GIFs on because they'll want to store them on chain for some reason, you know, like because it's scarce or something. But, you know, at the same time, the fact that they pushed the fees up made something happen, right? It motivated Bolt's exchange to get very busy and presumably a few sleepless nights there coding away and fixing bugs to have a workaround, which is now they can rebalance a channel with an on chain footprint. And yeah it's a different it's a different slightly like different trust model right like liquid is a little federated but you know just it's, a little federated yeah well i mean it's all a trade off right so <laughs> right right multi sig
0: you know, custodian basically right
2: i mean so it's uh, you know there's there's there are different trade offs so you could say you know people using exchanges that's like a single custodian risk right and you saw with ftx most recently that that can be extremely bad when it goes wrong and, you know, then, then I mean, there, there were, and still are some custodial lightning uh, things, right? Because, and I think sometimes people think that's fine because, you know, it's, it's maybe a medium, medium to low value transaction. Like if they lost the phone and they didn't back it up properly, they'd be more upset about losing the phone than about the sats on it because the phone is more expensive than the sats on it. So, you know, different uh, kind of risks are appropriate for different use cases. So I, would, I wouldn't, you know, some people get kind of dogmatic that you know you've got it you've got to be non-custodial. And of course it's important that people sh- should should be able to be non-custodial. But yeah, so liquid is just a trade-off in the middle, right? So it's somewhere between it's it's a lot less centralized than a single exchange. So you know, if people doing non-custodial trades with it, that's a far safer place than you know, putting limit orders in exchange. They can put limit orders on swap for example, which is a non-custodial, it's a central order book. And you can place limit orders and walk away and be offline. You you should be able to do that from a hardware wallet. They're working on that now. So that's cool, they can leave stink bids and not be exposed to exchange risk. But you know, I mean, they are exposed to the federation, right? Right. And I I think the point is, for rebalancing Lightning channels, it's actually quite interesting because they can rebalance cheaper and faster. And so they have a kind of competitive edge compared to people who are opening new channels or rebalancing on chain. And so even if you don't use it, you benefit from the improved liquidity in the network, right? You know, those channels are, there's some subset of the network, which is now um, more frequently re- rebalanced. And for the people running those channels, um, you know, they have high velocity and they can, you know, route the same amount of sats with less Bitcoin in the channel, because they can just keep knocking it back to the center whenever it gets off. Right? So, you know it's not as cheap as lightning you know like the fees on liquid with confidential transactions work out to i don't know about 10 cents a transaction but you know that's a lot less than the chain at times right on the main chain at times right
0: significantly less yeah i mean i think the 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 key kernel of of that thought process which is one of the reasons i'm so optimistic about bitcoin why i'm so where a lot of my Uh, conviction on Bitcoin comes from is this idea of, you know, anti-fragility, this idea of iron sharpens iron, right? So like we can talk about all these things for hours on end. We can do it in IRC. We can do it, you know, on forums. We can do it on Twitter. We can do it on Noster. We can do it on podcasts. But the things actually get built and improved on when they're actually feeling pressure and the market demands it. And as soon as fees started to creep up and increase, you started to see the pain points become very obvious. Uh, You started to see people complaining about having issues and user concerns and whatnot. And then you started almost immediately seeing improvements getting rolled out across the ecosystem to to handle those pain points and take advantage of, of that new opportunity that existed because of that pressure in the
1: first place, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah, it's free, you know, free
1: market, yeah, it's like super so important property. Bitcoin's not centrally planned. So the innovation will be driven out of necessity. And if someone's building something that isn't actually valuable, they won't be able to work on it for much longer because no one will fucking use it and pay them to work on it. So it's like really the most efficient, the free markets are the most efficient way to make progress.
2: And it's, it's also kind of a little bit viral because, you know, once somebody has a market edge they uh they drive others to copy them or or somebody you know somebody outperforms them in the market right you know they can operate channels more efficient they can make more money per you know per bitcoin tied up in channels because they can make it work harder and i presume that must work by you know drawing capacity out of other channels because you're, you're basically paying somebody to send you your own sats back right Right, um, and so you know that's those sats have got to come from somewhere. They just you, you're just you're just getting like all the sats pushed towards you, so you're having a good time. But that, that means somebody else who isn't doing that is probably having a, a worse time because usually the problem with on chain rebalancing is a bit like a Sudoku puzzle, right? You you pay yourself to rebalance your channel, and you just unbalance something else. So I think another uh, sort of advantage of this is you're not unbalancing. You know, you're not. You know, the, there's there's new money coming into it because I think the network can't distinguish between a payment. And a rebalancing if the if the if the rebalancing payment is out of band, so uh, it helps a bit solve the Sudoku puzzle I think, and ultimately, I, I think the fact that it's unilaterally you can adopt it unilaterally and it helps the network as a whole is is a is a is a good characteristic too for something to get incrementally adopted, right? Because there there are lots of technologies where you, everybody's got adopter, it, it doesn't do anything, you know, like Hashcash was kind of yeah. like that people saying well. You know, you need everybody to to recognize a postage stamp before it will help you much to put a postage stamp on it. And, you know, there are lots of things like that, right? So, mm-hmm.
0: um, Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I uh, I just saw the fourth question in the chat about uh, Barack's uh, proposed yeah. new L2 arc. I just wanted to say, I, I think it's a little bit early to discuss. Um, he will be coming to the Lightning Summit uh, in Nashville that we're hosting at Bitcoin Park. Uh, in July, so I'm going to do an in-person conversation with him on that. I'll probably bring in a panel. Uh, Maybe Jack will join us. He'll be in town for it as well. Um, But we'll Mm -hmm. make like a little party rip discussion on Arc and and dedicate a full discussion to that. Um, But he announced that on the open source stage at Bitcoin 2023. Adam, there was another question in the comments from uh, ride-or-die Free Carlos, um, who I disagree with on the timing of my episodes. He likes when my shows are in the morning. I prefer my early afternoon episodes. Um, But he asked um, if you are offended by my blunt commentary on the lack of liquid adoption.
2: Uh, No, because I have a market outlook, which is people will use something if they want to or if it solves a problem for them, right? And so, you know, that liquid bolts exchange use of liquid didn't exist a week ago, and now it does. (laughs) And that's because you know, something broke, right. And somebody found a, a simple solution. Um, I think, you know, and, and you see a similar thing with exchange risk too, right. You know, I personally got Mount Gox a little doing arbitrage on there. And so you learn like, I mean, every, every trader has been a while has lost something on some exchange right? It's been a big but, year for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's a refresher course. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, You know, I think it just shows that, um, you know, people forget risk, you know, they see people getting, losing, and then they, you know, it fades and they do it again. And, you know, the point of liquid is to be a, a lower risk way to place limit orders and trades and simple smart contracts like this. A trustless covered call cool option. I mean, trustless, right? You're you're trusting the stablecoin, you know. You're trusting the federation. Trust minimized, but, but it's definitely lower risk than you know the other uh, Bitcoin options, right? It's it's kind of depressing in a way, right? We have this you know, trustless bearer technology with Bitcoin, and yet all of the trading is old school. It's like, yeah, you send all your assets over here, you know, and yeah, the regulators are annoying, but they're pointing out that these these exchanges. Don't necessarily have like clear custody rules. I mean, look, look at the Celsius uh, bankruptcy decisions, right? You're like, yeah, those assets are not the users, they belong to the bankruptcy. Like, what, what the heck is that, right? So you know, evidently the the configuration of the contracts to start with was ridiculous. But um, the point is if you can avoid that and you know have a decentralized enough tech. To move it forwards, I mean that could become more decentralised over time. That's a step forwards, and you know the problem is you can't. It doesn't make sense to do everything on Bitcoin on a main chain, right? I, I think, um, you know, if sort of Lightning, Lightning does things that Bitcoin doesn't, and Liquid does things that Bitcoin doesn't, but you, they're not things that you necessarily would want to put into the main chain. So I think it's and and of course. You know, any layer two is typically worse than Bitcoin in m- one or more ways, right? Or Bitcoin would already do that, as uh, my thinking, right? So, different trade so yeah, like, balance. Yeah, so I mean, basically, it has to make a trade-off because otherwise, Bitcoin would already do it, right? So, so yeah, there's a trade-off, but you know, you can't write like trustless call options and trade them from a hardware wallet. On, on a main chain, nor should you want to, right? Because the main chain can provide a much better story, much better assurances for censorship resistance than a federated chain can. And it's much better for long-term assurance, right? That you can, you know, put a cold seed back up somewhere and get it back in 10 years, right? On a, on a federated chain, that might have such a good idea. But, you know, for the time frame that you have a trade on, you know, like some of these instruments, People are trading on a daily basis, or you know, an op, a twelve month option or something. Then it's then it's a, a step forwards, right? And I, I think that my view of technology is it's incremental and we're learning, and it doesn't necessarily matter which approach wins because the market's going to find it out for us, right? We're going to do you know different companies, different individuals, different developers are going to develop lots of different things, and we're going to find out what works, and move the thing forwards. But it is a little frustrating when um, people keep doing the risky things, and then they lose money, and then they do it again. And like, it's, I think that's the one thing that surprises me about Bitcoin, is how bad things have to get before people actually pay attention, feel the risk, stop doing the thing, um, or how expensive it has to get, or how broken something has to get before they adopt it. There's, there's, it's really reactive, right? There's not a lot of forward planning. Like, well, if the fees get to this level, then, you know, and historically, I think most of the fees are actually driven by traders. And I think something must have shifted, you know, I mean, traders still don't care about fees, but um, I think probably the cross-exchange stuff is happening with, you know, some of these pay to a third-party, you know, sort of service providers that provide custody to exchanges. I think they can move funds between exchanges. So it's probably an even bigger single point of failure. I think it took some of the trading fees off the network. So now we have something else driving the fees. But you know, it's it is it is a it's just a natural market uh side effect that the people that are least fee insensitive are gonna get the best experience. And that was always the case with the traders. You know, Bitcoin price would go up, the market would heat up, volume would, you know, exchange volume would be up ten times, and people would want to trade in a hurry. Look at the fee market and they just pay three times as much because they want to be in the next block and you've got lots of fee bots looking at that and they just go crazy right so i mean what can you do about that i don't know like encourage them i don't, I don't so that, that was part of the theory of liquid is like well does it even does it does the chain even care about you know a user moving bitcoin from custodian one to custodian two that seems like a completely useless I mean, a waste of chain space actually because you know, so Liquid can do that. And I don't think either of the traders are, it doesn't make any difference to them, right? So, but you know, persuading people to actually use it or to take their assets off the exchange or do trustless trade it like less, less centralized trading, like, you know, more smart contracts, offline limit orders, things like that. It's, um, it takes time or it takes, you know, a few events till people get sick of losing money basically. Do you think
0: I wonder about that, like do you think like there's been too much focus in the liquid ecosystem on trading rather than other use cases
2: for it? I mean, I mean possibly you know people people will uh you know you you can have in mind something that this could be useful for, but the market will find its use right. And it may not be what you think. Well, and like so the Bolts like, thing, the yeah. Bolts
0: thing would point to the opposite, right? It's right. like yeah. there's been all this focus on traders using it, but traders are kind of price insensitive, right? Yeah. Like they'll, they'll pay a higher fee. They're used to doing some kind of risk management yeah. and it's just a cost of doing business. And like you said, there's centralized providers that are doing this. And on top of that, now there's private lightning channels, presumably between a lot of these exchanges. Um, but then like something like the Bolts swap thing appears because end users need it in a like node operators needed in a high fee environment.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we saw some other organic uses, like people, uh, basically stacking Sats into liquids like daily. And then once a month they sweep it to the main chain or something like that. So it was was a way to kind of amortize fees, I guess. And, you know, it's, it's clever. Reduce because, custodial risk in the meantime. Right, it's clever because they're like, well, yeah. I'll tolerate it for a month, but I want real cold storage after a longer period. So that's quite clever. Right. And we did see that coming. Um, the other kind of curious thing is there is Lightning. I mean, apart from the Bolts Exchange, which is still a main chain Lightning channel, there is Lightning that works on liquid Bitcoin. Uh, it's kind of a separate network. I mean, possibly those networks could be bridged. But that's you know that's another kind of escape valve if the main chain gets really a lot of fee pressure, which is you know it's less kind of sense resistant or bearer than lightning backed in on chain things where you can you know you can get satisfaction from the main chain um the other thing that's kind of interesting in terms of you know a an escape valve is drive chains you know so bitcoin doesn't have the opcodes to support them but as a company you think that's going to happen i don't know we'll see right i mean um i think the tricky thing and that that's where liquid evolved from right because it was what you could do as a step towards that without needing opcodes for it
0: right without any soft forks
2: yeah and that that's that was our like well let's do that until such time as you know Uh, there's a convincing mechanism. I think the challenge is the Bitcoin is good at adopting soft forks that are like self-contained, clearly secure, win-win, simple. But things which are like a little bit complicated and a fuzzy trade-off, then people argue about them and they're not sure, you know. So I think another way you might get to something like that is... um, Simplicity, which which is, you know, a low-level sort of self-extensibility mechanism, like a script 2.0 for Bitcoin, but it, it, it predates Blockstream as a concept, but uh, Russell O'Connor was talking about this in, I don't know, 2012 or something on IRC, so we recruited him and some more people to, to build it out. and. I think the interesting thing about that is, you know, something like a Schnorr signature could have been implemented from scratch. So you can think about it a bit like microcode for Bitcoin scripts. So you can make new op codes from scratch in a, in a fairly compact way. You can prove they're correct and you can prove, you know, a C implementation is the same as the simplicity implementation. So you know, vaguely something like the lot, it, it, it could sort of complete the circle of what there's, a, there's an old, Bitcoin talk post by Satoshi saying that he rushed the script design for a release so that it could be frozen, and he'd never have to change it again. And that's like part of the ossification story, right? So maybe simplicity could finally make that reality, which is, you know, the original Bitcoin script there are a bunch of bugs in it and people rapidly disabled some opcodes and it seems to be not, not flexible enough to, you know, to build a Schnorr signature with, for example, right? So simplicity is lower level and it could actually do that and do it efficiently and with formal security proofs. So it might be, and I've seen this in other kind of programming language, you know, first debates about programming language evolution, like C language had one of these, the C preprocessor, where people actually are more relaxed about uh, extensibility. You know, like, who doesn't want extensibility? Sounds good, you sure it's secure, right? Like, yeah, it's a complicated thing, but it's opt-in. You're fairly sure it's secure, and who doesn't like extensibility? Whereas if you have you know, a specific feature, then people can going to debate the feature, right? You know, so there's a big debate about covenants and there's like, I don't know, four right. or five different designs. And so the time seems to be not so much about whether covenants are useful, but about which design. And like, the, the assumption is, well, we're going to have one opcode. So it's kind of like you've got a CPU and it's a risk CPU and it's got so many instructions and you want to add another instruction. There's an intense debate about, you know, what is the optimal instruction? How's it fit in with other stuff? Whereas if you've got like, bam, you know, here's a low-level um, script 2.0. We could just build stuff. It's kind of permissionless again, right? And so if you had that, you know, because you, you could build, you know, pit-to-pit sidechains and drive chains with it because um, you just implement whatever functionality you want, you need, you make an opcode or some microcode, and you do it, and you're sort of, you know, and you're, and you're quite convinced it's safe, and I think ultimately, you know, you don't you don't opt into smart contracts by accident, right? You know, if you're going to receive, you know, if you're like, oh, I don't know if multi-seg is secure to use an example, or I don't know if covenant is secure, well, you're not going to receive a covenant transaction by accident, right? You have to like have a wallet that understands that and have opted into it. Right. So I think effectively, you 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 end up with like little extension places of people who've opted into some feature, and as long as that. There's a convincing argument that those are, you know, you can't get hurt if you don't opt into it and security of the chain is protected. You know, so maybe that's another way we get there. But I mean, that's why I asked the provocative question. So, what how do we get the next billion users so they can have censorship resistant Bitcoin? Because it's pretty difficult to do today, right? You know, I mean there are, there are other ideas, like you know, Burex talking about ARC, other people are talking about shared UTXOs. So it's all kind of trying to push the envelope and because we don't know, right? There's still the new things being invested, invented, and we don't have to get there in one go. And some of these kind of half steps help too, right? You know, if you can rebalance channels without more UTXOs with a 1.5, like liquid, it helps a bit. You can have lightning on liquid, that helps a bit. There's channel factories, there's all these organic things, right? But people don't necessarily adopt them until a the next wave of fees or issues is seen. So, I think it's just the way it works, like, historically in Bitcoin, you know, people are building things, kind of curious, you know, waiting for people to adopt it, and nobody will adopt anything until they have a pain point, and then they do it in a rush. So, it is what it is. I mean, like, Binance was talking about lightning, finally, right? They've been talking about that for a couple of years. Right. And suddenly they they're like, oh, I guess we need lightning, huh? Yep.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, I think we won't figure out we won't figure out how to onboard the next billion until, till there's actually pressure to do so. Right until we actually start to see real on-chain pressure. At, at the at the crux of it all is is that on-chain fee pressure. I mean, you look back three months ago, and I was saying mempools will never clear again. Um, and obviously that was an intentionally provocative statement and I will continue to say it uh, because I think it's effective and helpful. Um, but, but really what I'm trying to get across is we need to be prepared for a sustained high fee environment at some point, some point that's going to fucking happen. Uh, and But the reality of the situation is we'll never be fully prepared for it. And when it happens is when we're going to figure everything out on the fly. And that's when shit really gets done. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the block size debate was interesting because if, in a way, you know, I, it's, it's very interesting to see newcomers point to that as the moment of confidence for them, like Jack was describing with his dad, but, you know, from yeah. a point of view of the immutability, right? Because if you like, you know, the fact, the first wave of fee spikes back in, I don't know, 2014, 2015, and, you know, a bunch of companies banded together, and we're like, we need a quick fix, we need you to, like, you know, try and pressure anybody who could, they thought they could influence till they, you know, push the block size up a hundred times. And if you, if you think about it, it's a kind of quantitative easing type of activity, right? It's like, well, we create a problem. We didn't do anything about it. It was obviously coming, but now there's a the moral hazard. Yeah, you go weaken the system. We'll take some shortcuts, put some duct tape on it so that we can keep doing the, you know, the inefficient thing that doesn't reinvest in its own, Technology base or something, and so it's interesting that Bitcoin didn't go for that, right? You know, so I guess I mean the way I look at it is is it was a kind of market victory. It's like, it's, it's fun, like everything in Bitcoin seems to come down to the market deciding, right? And a market, the investors obviously valued the censorship resistance, and unlike. You know the eternal september on the internet the investors are weighted by their conviction like are they going to trade it and the number of coins they had and investors have more coins than the people doing retail payments and so they won you know so like no we want i mean market basically said we value you know verifiable censorship resistant bearer bitcoin more than you know on-chain brute force you know, retail payments or something, right? Uh, at, at a loss of some of that. So super interesting.
0: Do you think, so, I mean, you mentioned the block size war. Uh, I'm kind of curious on both of your opinions here, but um, do you think, so the block size war increased my conviction uh, in, in Bitcoin, but I think I got a different takeaway than most people did and my takeaway was, my takeaway was that uh, Bitcoin is extremely ha- hard to change by default. That's the key. That's what underlines the key value prop. Is because if it was easy to change at a whim, uh, then it could be easy to change by an attacker, right? And it could be made a weaker money. Um, so it's extremely hard to change by default. But also, we witnessed an attempt to change it, a very brute forced attempt to change it via hard fork um where funds weren't at risk like i was a holder of bitcoin entering the 2017 uh block size war um and now i was an active holder of bitcoin so so i was watching and i was aware and and i could choose who i thought was gonna which side i thought was gonna win but if i wasn't an active um participant as a result i essentially had equivalent bitcoin on on both chains right so like if you held bitcoin and this might be new for a lot of people that are listening to it which is why i'm trying to unpack it a little bit if you held bitcoin pre-2017 um and then you go into the block size wars you had an equivalent amount of bitcoin cash uh held by the same exact private key so if you went into a coma you just turned off the internet you did whatever you just lived your life you had equivalent on both sides um but what i took away from it was first of all um that wasn't it wasn't the end of the world. Bitcoin has been extremely successful since then. Um, if people wanted to opt out of that situation, they could have just turned off their computer and they're, they're still holding their private keys and they have equivalent Bitcoin on both chains. Um, but I kind of took away from it that if for some reason, you know, we're just small people, we're just individuals here on this planet. I have no idea what's going to fucking happen in the future i have no idea what kind of demand is going to happen in the future i don't understand what kind of stress bitcoin might be put under in the future if there was some kind of situation where bitcoin needed to hard fork and like once again very hard to measure like objective momentum or objective uh, uh desire or need for a change to bitcoin uh there is a path for that to happen so and there's a path that's not a non-destructive path, I, and 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 so my question is basically: this is a long-winded question, but my question is basically: is there a potential for Bitcoin to hard fork in the future, or is I feel like a lot of people took out of out of the 2017 block size war that, that hard forks will never happen, and I kind of took it the opposite way that like hard forks might happen, but like if they were to happen, there needs to be an overwhelming stakeholder desire and need for that change for it to happen
2: yeah tends to agree
1: yeah i i also agree i mean the box size wars it was it was very like pivotal chapter but it was it was pretty simple in summary is that the market like the collective free market was asked is bitcoin more like a tech startup or more like a digital scarce commodity? Like, what, what, what does the world value Bitcoin as? Because we could have, yeah, taken shortcuts, built a roadmap, elected certain developers to lead engineering efforts, and it would have acted more like a startup, like Ethereum. And the world collectively decided that, no, that's not why this thing is important to the free market. And that was really cool because the world is so accustomed to central planning in in all of our lives Um, and uh, not just within money. And so it was really cool to see a distributed network come to consensus on such a like large question of its purpose. And so, yeah, it gives everyone confidence that I think if there was needing to be a resolution, um, the free market would, figure it out for sure it was the first time it happened at that scale and so yeah i think i don't know if the free market agrees that it needs to happen it'll happen
0: yeah i think i think people just don't realize that you don't need permission to fork bitcoin like anyone can fork bitcoin no i mean i was gonna yeah
1: oh go ahead go ahead no i was just gonna gonna say the crazy
0: thing is you don't really know you don't really know whether or not there's real support for it till after the fact
2: Yeah. yeah i mean uh, I think, it, you know, because the, the not your keys, not your coins mantra was there before. But after the fork, I think people got a similar realization that, well, you really need to verify your coins with your own node as well. And so the kind of importance and popularity of running your own node became part of it because if you weren't running your own nodes, you could end up on the wrong chain. And you got your keys, yep. but your Getting tricked by like big bitcoins or, you know, some service provider or wallet provider that's got an axe to grind has decided for you. And that's not what you want, right? So I think here, increased awareness that, yeah, have your own keys, run your own node, or like at least, you know, be aware of it and, you know, ask other people who are more technical if, if something's going on. But that essentially, if, if you have your own keys and you're running your own node, there's nothing anybody, any external actor can do to affect your Bitcoin. You know, they can go off and create their, you know, uh, what do they call it? BizCoin, you know, like a a big KYC chain over there and you're not really affected, right? Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was like a cool, you know, back in the day, people forget there was confusion in the public of whether miners, like controlled Bitcoin's outcome yeah Uh, like it was crazy it's actually this is like fun to talk to you guys because it's crazy to think back over the last like 10 years on a lot of this stuff but yeah at the time there was like general genuine confusion on whether bitcoin miners could drive bitcoin's outcome and it was the best education ever for the public to realize that nodes govern and enforce the rules and then people were like oh really wow who runs those and then the answer is whoever the fuck wants to run one can run (laughs) one really why because we keep the block size small and we care about accessibility uh, and really shitty hardware and the ability to actually run one. You're like, wow, that's amazing. And people started to run one and voted with their feet on like what they wanted the rules to be. And it was like the coolest moment ever because you'd go on to see on TV and the TV analysts are interviewing Roger Bear like, well, the, these miners decided this and the whole world was like, actually, that's not how it works and all of us can run a node. And it, it was like a beautiful moment. It was hilarious. and. I was going to make a joke, Matt, because (laughs) the funniest part that people don't appreciate about forking Bitcoin is you're right. So for those that don't know, when you fork Bitcoin, they take a copy of the blockchain and they duplicate it. So if you own 10 Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain and they make Bitcoin fast fork or Bitcoin green fork or Bitcoin wood coin fork, then you own 10 on there too. And so I don't know. This is like a comedy skit level, hilarious. Roger Ver, this guy, you guys should all Google him if you weren't around, he forked Bitcoin. And so whatever I owned on Bitcoin, I now owned his version of Bitcoin. And it's like creating money out of thin air. And so you get really excited and you're like, shit, like my net worth like doubled. This is amazing. I used to own 10 Bitcoin and now I own 20 because I own 10 real Bitcoins and 10 of these guys' Bitcoins. And then you have this like really sad moment where you're like, oh, shit, but his Bitcoins aren't actually worth anything because they're not real Bitcoins. They're his version of Bitcoins. And that's when the funniest thing that I've ever been through happened is he just bought them all from us. They're worth nothing. They're pieces of <laughs> shit. But he was so driven by his ego that he was like, I'm going to create funny money out of thin air that's worthless. And then I'm going to give you real money. The best thing ever is I just do anything. And I got gifted these pieces of shit that were pieces of shit and that are worthless. And some guy then just bought them all for me and gave me real Bitcoins for his fake Bitcoins. And it was like, it was just a joyous time to be around because everyone learned how to run a node and why it was important. And we all got free money for doing, ne- for I mean, I don't want to say doing nothing, but it was like, the, I, it, it's going to be a story I don't know how to tell my kids. It's like, yeah, one time this guy was like so mad at everyone and so ego driven that he created a bunch of fake Bitcoins and gave us all his real Bitcoins for them. <laughs> it was like the craziest thing.
0: Well, yeah. I will say fortunately, and I had him on the show, but fortunately BitMEX Research wrote up a great book block size war which we can have our kids read uh because it is important that the history was written down but i I mean that that's crazy that lesson's still not learned and i I actually expect it to be as the freaks know i like to make predictions i expect it to be learned again because of this whole like greenpeace change the code thing um changing bitcoin to proof of stake and they don't realize yet that they can just fork it
2: um oh they they don't need our permission it exists. So, no, there, Adam, there's... you're
0: wrong. You're a legend, but you're wrong. That is not a fork. That is just a shit
2: coin. Oh, okay. Yeah. There, there is a coin, <laughs> Bitcoin something. Yeah. Bitcoin uh, proof of stake. There's that's a, it. And its yeah, price it's is not, like zero, like zero, zero, zero. But it's not a fork. Oh, uh, it's an
0: airdrop or something. We didn't get we didn't no, it's not even an airdrop. No. They just oh, put the sad. name Bitcoin. And they just created a shitcoin coin that's proof of stake and they put the name Bitcoin in front of it. Oh, that's
2: sad. Because I had a I had a good time We need a proper
0: Bitcoin proof of stake fork where like yeah, yeah. all the UTX like the UTXO set is the same exact UTXO set that we have equivalent amount of Bitcoin proof of stake tokens that we can dump on Greenpeace and BlackRock.
1: Yeah. Um
0: like it's coming.
1: Yeah. They should uh, let's let's run it back. That's they should true. fork it. Let's, uh, run it let's run it back. They should fork it. Give me a bunch of free worthless pieces of shit, and they can buy it from me.
2: They don't need our um, permission. Let's run it
1: back. So, so yeah, change the code. Go for it. Send yeah, yeah. That,
2: that, is, that oh yeah. Somebody's bringing up the skull <laughs> meme. I mean, that was a <laughs> gift actually. The uh, the uh, nuclear powered skull. People were like, "Yes, this is it." But I, I think it comes back to what we were saying about um, you know any hard money has, it seems inherently has to have a uh, unavoidable production costs. And so I, I don't know what they're really arguing that, you know, you, you want like fiat money, like go use it. It's called the euro or the dollar, right? If you, if you don't want hard money, don't use it. Like what's, what's the problem, right? And I, I mean, gold mining uses power and chemicals and digging big holes in the ground and grinding up rocks and stuff, right? So it's, it's a cost of, um, Having to depend on money, and so it's a net win for society. I think the other thing people uh, don't like, you know, economics is hard because it's all full of second-order effects, right? That they will think that the cost of mining is a a sort of new spend, but every, every it's it, there's like a conservation of of momentum, a conservation of energy here thing, right? Which is if I buy some Bitcoin or I spend some money buying electricity to mine, that money came from somewhere. It's you know, I stopped buying something else to do it or I sold something else to do it. And like if you look at what the average you know developed country person was spending money on before they got into Bitcoin, it's all like disposable stuff that and you know plastic things that end up in landfills, right? So, you know, even on that basis, like doing less of that and developing a longer time horizon, trying to buy fewer consumerist things and things that last longer because you want to, you know, save your money so you can buy Bitcoin. that That's the thing you've got to compare it to, right? Is, is a, you know, a longer time frame outlook market and the value of that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, my takes are always more aggressive, typically. Like, I just think that these people shouldn't – we shouldn't even waste time on these people that are – like, who, who are they to tell us? Us – I'm not even going to say us as in, like, Bitcoin. It's like, who, who is one person to tell another how they should be using energy? Like, the fuck do you think you are? Like, right. when, the, when the light bulb was invented, it was like, hey, you know, you're not allowed to turn that light on. Why? Who the fuck do you think you are? I can do what I want. Like right. I wanna take my girlfriend to Paris this fall. I'm gonna take I'm gonna fly in an airplane instead of a kayak because I would prefer to use energy. It's my decision. So well, it's like right. an energy, like harvesting energy is like correlated to human flourishing. Every time oh, we yeah. find a way to use energy productively and innovate with energy, we advance. The light bulb, the automobile, flying, right. like Bitcoin. And so like it's it's not my fault that the United States is ill positioned. In, in a geopolitical sense uh, around energy, like, you know, a politician's opinion is a politician's position. You know, they don't like energy because they don't, con- they don't have like the net benefit. Like, you know, they are short energy effectively to people that now all of a sudden don't really yeah. like that. I mean, I'm speaking about what, American politicians. What, but, what, yeah,
2: What you're saying is, <laughs> is true going back for like hundreds of years. If you look at history, that there is a extremely clear correlation between human advancement, uh, prosperity, and the wealth of nations correlated with, you know, their their energy or power capacity that they can build. So, you know, what we should be doing is building more energy generation to build the future, right? And so, you know, this, this kind of concept of cutting off power sources, austerity, it's, it's like trying to drive drive the economy into the previous century or something. It's just backwards.
1: Yeah, but it's just so dis- It's so disrespectful. It's like energy, to your point, there's just data that energy, like being able to have access to energy and harness energy has a direct implication on the quality of one's life. And so for you to tell me that I'm not allowed to use energy means that I'm not allowed to have a high quality life. So you can go fuck yourself. I'm not going to listen to that. I want to use energy because I lo- I want to live a high quality life. I want to fly in airplanes. I want to drive fast cars. I want to own Bitcoin. And like I don't I don't if you don't want to use energy, you can take kayaks and you could walk everywhere and you can not watch. The NBA playoffs on television and you can store your wealth in fiat. I don't give a shit. But don't tell me that my quality of life needs to be diminished because you don't you don't want to use energy. It's just so stupid. Like we just waste so much time on these stupid people. I never understood that of like why using energy is bad. Like, since when? And who do you think you are to 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 try and it's really like you know, people don't understand America is in a bad place. I mean, that's like authoritarian type shit. Like you're not going to get, let us, you're not going to promote us harnessing and using energy to improve the quality of our lives. You're going to dictate that. That's not like, that was a lot of my message when I was in DC a month ago was like, you guys got to fix this. I would highly suggest that you start harnessing American ingenuity and innovation and entrepreneurism to start using energy and get, and, and, building a moat and value within this open public good because if you guys keep bitching about energy use um in 10 years you're gonna be in a lot of trouble energy is a core function of what <laughs> our species existing and flourishing right. yep
0: <laughs> i co-signed that statement uh damn right um guys guys <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure um i know time is scarce we've been going for a little bit over two hours um i hope to have you both on on again so um we shouldn't have to cover everything um i will say specifically uh there's a i saw a bunch of questions about kyc i think there's a lot of demand for like a proper sit down and heart to heart um on like the path forward for strike and how and your vision for strike jack so like when you're in town in nashville um when you're at the, when you're at the park in July, we should we should do like a proper, you know, just me and you, just go on about strike and and how you're looking at everything. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I try and go on Twitter and answer people's questions, so it doesn't have to wait till July. But yeah, totally
0: fair enough. I'm um down. but uh, I mean, I would love to have you both on again. But I mean, before we wrap, I like to end it with final thoughts. Um, so. With that said, Adam, you want to hit us with some final thoughts? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that Bitcoin will be fine. And as somebody said in the scroll back, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. High fees are the driver of adoption. (laughs) And, you know, the technology to scale and support, you know, a billion users, it, it will come, you know, maybe not exactly the way we think it will come. But, you know, all the pieces are around and new things are getting developed all the time. And things get developed and used faster as, as you know, as people have their use for it. So it's all good.
0: Cheers to that. Thank you, Adam. Jack, final thoughts?
1: Um, my favorite part about this conversation is uh, the value of free markets. I think Bitcoin works and uh, we're just lucky enough to be alive to watch it be assessed and valued um in a free market it's really cool things are going to be built and uh the maturity of its understanding is going to evolve and cool time to be alive so i don't know i'm excited i think bitcoin's going to moon on the back half of this i'm just excited to be alive and be a part of it
0: do you think a million dollars in in 90 days or
1: (laughs) no i'm not that dumb no Uh, I actually, I respect Balaji. I don't think he was being super legitimate. <laughs> I think he was being super helpful actually on trying to get his message across. He did a really good yeah. job at that, but I don't know how well, practical he thought that. I was. think
0: if you're going to go down that route, you should, you should not backtrack until day 90. You have to go, no, you have to go, I, go full I, hog. I
1: think it's going to, I think it'll be higher um, in years to come than it is today. How I, about that,
0: I'm not disappointed in him for making the bold prediction. I'm disappointed him backtracking on day 32 or whatever day it was um Successful awesome gorilla marketing yeah. yeah well it could have been yeah okay well um this was a fucking awesome conversation gents i really enjoyed it i had a lot of fun i hope the audience enjoyed it as well i hope they found it helpful um on the dispatch front we have some i have some amazing shows uh, set up for us on tuesday at uh 3 30 eastern time 1930 utc i have phoenix ammunition which is a American small business ammo manufacturer that accepts Bitcoin. I think he's going to have a very interesting, different perspective than a lot of people that we have on the show. Um, and then the next day on Wednesday, May 31st, at 3 p.m. Eastern, 1900 UTC, I have uh, CK, Christian Caroles, uh from Bitcoin Magazine. We're going to do a proper debrief of Bitcoin 2023. Go through all your questions, comments, concerns, feedback. Have a nice hard, hard to heart discussion there. So that'll be good. There's a lot more discussions that I plan to have on Dispatch. I hope you all join us for those. Um, like I said, still Dispatch is available on all your favorite platforms. Just search it. Press that subscribe button. Share it. Enjoy it. Um, and to all the freaks who continue to support the show with Bitcoin, I really do appreciate it. I want to give so much love to Adam and Jack. Thank you guys for all you do, and thank you for joining me. I know time is scarce, and I really do appreciate it.
1: We appreciate you, man. You're the GOAT.
0: Thanks. Thank you both. Much love, freaks. Stay humble and stack sats. Peace.